Hello, welcome to the Burning Eye podcast. I'm Bridget Hart, editor and publisher at Burning Eye Books, the UK's leading publisher in spoken word and performance poetry. We are delighted to be back in 2021 for another year of exciting books by the very best spoken word artists the country has to offer. We want to say a really, really big thank you to everybody who supported and kept us going last year during the pandemic and supported our artists as they released their books into um, an environment which had no live venues. Um, We did pretty well considering that we didn't have any live venues last year. So thank you very much for all of your support, um, buying the books, sharing um, and uploading links, and generally supporting spoken word as a whole. Um, Without you, the community would fail. So thank you very much. Today, um, we're back with a new episode. I'm very excited to be joined today by um, our first 21 poet, Rob G. Rob G qualified as a psychiatric nurse in 1994 and worked for 12 years in mental health units around the UK and Australia. He has worked in child and adolescent units, drug and alcohol services, eating disorders, early psychosis intervention, dementia settings and psychiatric intensive care. As a stand-up poet, Rob has won numerous poetry slams, including the Edinburgh Slam, the Arts Council Lit Up Slam, BBC Two's Why Poetry Matters Slam, and the Orlando Poetry Smackdown. He's performed at hundreds of fringe festivals across the world and received over 20 awards for his solo shows. He is a patron of Leicestershire Action for Mental Health Project and a leading artist for Comedy Asylum, comedy shows written and performed by people receiving mental health treatment. Rob returned to nursing during the COVID-19 pandemic, where a lot of his material in the new book also is set. The new book, The Day My Head Exploded, Poems About Healthcare, is a prolific look at Rob's career in and out of psychiatric nursing, as well as having treatment himself. And we are very, very delighted to showcase his work to the world and delighted to have him on the podcast today. So keep listening sit back, grab your cup of tea, whatever you've got going, um, and enjoy. Uh, hi, Rob, how are you doing? I'm very good, Bridget, how are you today? I just launched straight in there, like, hi, Rob! Ah! Um, <laughs> I'm very well. It is, um, it's gone cold again. Last week it was 20 degrees, and now it's 2 degrees. Yeah. And uh, my, my body can't cope with it. I'm really cold. <laughs> I've got a beanie on inside. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I mean, we had snow yesterday. The sun is shining today. Um, it's like an old thing, isn't it? You know, if you don't like the weather, wait a minute. Yeah, yeah, definitely. British weather is like one of those things where maybe we're one of the only countries in the world that you go out with an umbrella and suntan lotion. I think British Columbia has that kind oh, of. Oh, okay, uh, great. Uh, that yeah. kind. Of. I think but you know lots of sun lots of rain lots of everything in between you know that yeah Ooh. yeah we're, we're a weathered people <laughs> <laughs> so Rob um uh, congratulations we've just launched um uh, the day my head exploded um which is your second is it your second full collection no it's my first actually the first I'm, oh my gosh on how pedantic we get about how we define a collection so it's like oh. I've, my uh, my career as a, as a stand-up poet, spoken word artist, whatever we, we call it. But my sort of career as a writer, performer, really went into a new realm when I stopped worrying about where my next poem was going to come from and started thinking about where my next show was going to come from. 
So I've released books of shows, which are like this, and my shows are sort of this, this weird hybrid of, of, of theatre, comedy and, and, and poetry, you know. So, so there's books of them, and then there's books that I got commissioned to write, which are essentially collections, but I was, they're, they're commissions as well. So they don't, I was with the best will in the world, they, they don't have as much of your heart and soul in as, as something that you're not yeah. doing for money. Um, so, so by my definition, uh, as you've worked out, all my answers are going to be really short. Uh, this is this is this is my first collection, my first actual collection of poems that I've written. That I love that you know. Yeah, and you can kind of see that in the way that um, the poems span the years of of your <laughs> career, both as a as a poet, as a nurse, um, as an inpatient. You know, there's a a real um, portfolio there of um, different times of your life coming in and I really love that and, and I love doing prolific collections for people that have been around for a while and haven't haven't done a definitive collection we did one for Steve Larkin a few years ago and that was really special to be able to put all of Steve's stuff in a book and release it into the world because you like Steve have been around for such a long time you know longer than a lot of the people that are on the scene now yeah I mean trotting around forever you know I mean when did I do my first poetry gig March 1993 was my first wow gig, you know so how depressing yeah no that's not depressing I love stuff like that what was tell me tell tell us what was the what was the scene like what was your first what was your first gig like in in uh, the well, this was this was uh, twenty year old me, um, I, I, a very angry young man with the occasional wanking poem. Do, do you know, as archetypally as as you know, twenty year old boys in the mid nineties and probably to this day can be. You know, no, they, they still exist. Uh, yes. <laughs> but you don't realise how much you got to learn. It, it, it's yeah. Um, I was a second year, I, I got into mental health quite early, you know, I, I just turned 18 when I, I was working in, a, in a, a mental health care home. I started my training when, so when I was 19 and it was, it was at the start of my second year of nurse training. I was in my first uh, acute ward in, in mental health, what they then called acute psychiatry. And there was a nurse, qualified nurse on the ward, lovely lad, crusty lad, you know, you know dreadlocks, he's a really nice lad. And he's saying, oh, uh, I, I used to be in bands as a teenager. Um, I used to be in like punk rock bands. I couldn't sing, but it was punk rock, who cared, right? So um, I, was, I was in a band when I was 16 called Catholic School Porn Ring. Uh, and we got, we got banned from the local church hall. It's like, you know, live the dream. So we, you know, so there's a lot of that. And then um, I was a second year old student nurse and this fella, on the ward I was on, just said, look, we've got an open mic night uh, in this pub in town. Why don't you bring out some of your old lyrics from one of your old punk bands and uh, read them out? Um, and it was a really divey pub. I, I remember there was a fight halfway through it. Uh, and it, was, it wasn't what I was expecting it to be at all. It was, it was quite a ropey end of town. And I remember the sort of, all this sort of chaos, this sort of carnage going on and me standing on a chair going, can you shut up? I've got a pain. <laughs> and that was my first. That was my first ever, um, yeah, the first sort of excursion in, into it, and and uh, and I loved it, loved it to bits because um, I think back in 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 the nineties and early noughties, performance poetry was, was much more comedy based than it is now. So so um, and it's it's it's, it's something on its own evolution. Which is, which is really nice. I grew up on comedy. I've always loved comedy. I've always loved punk rock. And for me, uh, doing 
poetry allowed me to combine my my favorite elements of the two while restricting myself to neither mm -hmm. uh, as as i saw it back then and uh so i've always seen it as entertainment but i like the fact that you're not restricted to getting a laugh every five seconds so you can push all these other fantastic buttons as well and yeah so that was yeah so i, I suppose my mental my career as a mental health nurse and my career as a, as a performance poet sort of they've always happened in tandem you know they've, they've always uh as, as an adult i've always done both and sometimes i've been a full-time nurse where the poetry's been a hobby sometimes i've been a full-time poet uh and, and uh the, like the nursing has been at best a dark hobby um, and, and, and it's gone through all these sort of permutations and changes over the years you know so it was nice to put out a book with, with 28 years of poems about the theme of healthcare mm. you know yeah yeah I think that's true of a lot of um, successful poets that they always have there's a side job going on or there's a side uh, community that they're part of I also started out in the punk scene and you know did squat gigs where you know there would be fights and like people spitting at you and like people just like spilling their beer over you not even realizing that you've got a, that you're trying to do a poem like it's it is absolute chaos and i love that chaos a bit and i think um it really helps you to cut your teeth as a, as a performer yeah such a tough crowd and then go into a a poetry setting and be like oh i Oh, okay. People can hear me. Everyone sat down. This is lovely. <laughs> there is, did you get that feeling of I felt? Because I mean, I I lived in Australia, in Melbourne, Australia for a year. I did punk gigs like where they go, okay, you blokes, you know, there's a poet now. They go, boo. They go, yeah, he's a pom. <laughs> so you get booed on. Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, um, but did you find in that experience, you get used to doing these really difficult gigs or even just supporting bands or just those kind of gigs, right? Where you've actually got to prove yourself because they're not there for poetry. They don't know yet that they're not the kind of poetry. So you get used to doing those kind of environments. And then you're in like a really nice, you find yourself in a really nice sort of theatre space or a place where people actually come to hear what you... I don't know how it was for you. For me, it was felt, I realised that for all that time, it was like someone had, had put like a hand against my chest, stopping me from going forward. And I was always sort of ranting on stage at them to try and make myself. And then, and then doing those really sort of open venues where they are really receptive to what you actually have to say. It's like someone had taken the, the hand away from their chest and just said, well, go on then. You yeah. Know, and I thought, oh, what have I actually got? Yeah, and then you're like, oh, crap. <laughs> Well, no, I've actually got, I need to work on my content. <laughs> yeah, that's it, isn't it? You know, I think when you're in a punk scene, it's, it's quite easy to just um, throw ACAB around and some other stuff and people are like, yeah, you can get the laughs. And as a, as a um, non-male poet, punk poet, like it was even harder for me to go into those settings and try and prove myself because A, they didn't want to hear poetry and B, they didn't want to hear a woman talking about sexism in the punk scene, you know? And then you go into, but then, but then taking those poems into a poetry setting where no one knows what you're talking about because they're not part of these communities. It, yeah. And then you're like, oh, I'm, I'm feeling a bit uh, displaced. I don't, I don't really know where to, to sort of belong. And you start to think of it a bit as that as a bad thing. But in hindsight, it's actually a really good thing to be fluid and to be able to move between these spaces, um, you know, and there's a time and a space for you to be angry and ranty and up the punk 
and there's a space for you to bring more of your maybe thoughtful poems to the table, you know, and I quite like being able to have that duality with it. Yeah, and then, well, I suppose the more different audiences we write for, the more eclectic our material mm, becomes. And, yeah. and yet you make a, it's, you make a really good point there about the, because I, I think looking back, you know, when I was doing those punk gigs, I would just get more mail about it. Do you know what I mean? I'd just be the most alpha version of me yeah. to sort of dominate the room. You know, and, and also doing the comedy clubs. That, that my ticket, I left nursing in uh, and became like half a double act on doing the comedy clubs, and that was the, the day job for five years or the night job or whatever. But again, they're really quite alpha environments mm. sometimes, you know, particularly the kind of gigs we were doing because we're doing really filthy songs, you know. So you're doing a lot of sort of stag nights and hen nights and all that, mm. kind of things, you know. And it, again, you'd find that you're much, you know, you I'd. You know, you hear stuff. I'd hear stuff come out of my mouth, thinking, "Wow, this is a really alpha version of, of me." So that, so that point, you you, you make sort of a non-male in yeah. that environment, trying to uh, make that work on your own terms. Yeah, totally. You know, yeah. What training? Pardon? What what a training? You know, uh, yeah. what, what, in your teeth and sort of, uh, yeah, you know, know what you're made of and and all. But I, I always thought that the bad gigs teaches things and the good gigs inspire us to carry on. So you can't really miss. No, absolutely. I think that's true. I think every gig that you do, every performance that you do helps build you up further and further in whatever way that looks like. And you have done numerous slams and things like that over the years. Um, Slam champion, you won the Edinburgh Slam, which is televised now you know it's like quite a big you know so it's a really big deal and um uh so you've sort of come up through that slam scene that old school slam scene where comedy was really um a massive driving force stand-up poetry and things like that yeah. um and uh do like you know when hammer and tongue was the only you know big mm -hmm. deal in terms of poetry in the in the country um and what was what was it like to like be part of um, a, a smaller spoken word scene? It was great for me. It was like punk rock in the you know the the the, 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 the in the nineties. They kept saying that comedy was a new rock and roll, you know, which is nonsense. But I always thought if comedy is the new rock and roll, performance poetry is the new punk rock, you know. Um, and, and so because it was underground and not many people knew about it, yeah, you'd do gigs to sort of twenty, thirty people. Yeah, you'd have loads of conversations about. Oh, I didn't know poetry could be like that kind of. But it was great, you know, the whole grassrootsiness, I think. You know, I, 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 you know, I spent the whole of my 20s pretty much slapping around the country doing gigs for very little money and sleeping on people's floors and loved, you know, loved... Yeah, loved absolutely love that, yeah. Uh, with the slams, uh, I, I think the reason I won so many back then, I mean, I've not done a slam for years, you know, and I suspect I probably wouldn't do very well in them now, but the, I, I settled upon a formula uh, quite quickly. I worked out that the way to win a slam in the late 90s, early noughties, was you'd, you'd go on stage, you'd hit him with short shot, really funny, just make him love you, right? And if that way, if you get through that round, great. Assuming it's a three round slam, right? Second round, again, short shot, funny, just that, you know, right? And then if by that stage you're in the final, that point, that's where you give them your, your no laps, heart on sleeve. Yeah. That's, and, that's how, and that's how you'd win a poetry slam. Yeah. So you head around that formula. Uh, it, you know, it would work at least 50% of the time, you know, so, because yeah. um, uh, I, I think a lot of, one thing that's probably still in common now, a lot of slams is strategy, you, you know. So I think so, yeah, I think there's a lot of strategy in slams these days, absolutely. Um, 
I definitely, I definitely see it. I, I always make the mistake of doing like a really political poem first. That everyone's like, well, yeah. And then, and then I'm like, and now here's my very thoughtful poem about death. And then everyone's like, oh no, oh no, actually that guy was way funnier than you. And I always come seconds in slams and I'm always slightly salty about it. I'm like, but okay, fine. Um, I I a lot of people have this thing about slams now as well, where, um, you know, it, it doesn't, you know, there's this argument that slams are not welcoming and that they're too competitive um, and that people get caught up in that competitiveness with slams, which I don't think always existed. Like when I was starting out like 10 years ago, slams were a little bit competitive, but it wasn't, um, it, it didn't have the heaviness that I think a lot of slams have now of like I, the winning thing is the goal you know before it was like let's just share some poetry and have a fun time well you always said the point is not the point the point is the poetry that was always the, the thing about and i think the really nice thing about slams is that when you lose there's always a reason you know yeah. you a long time you did this you did that or there was just the way the names got drawn or whatever but when you win it's because you're great yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I think so too. Um, I've been through a lot of like slams and stuff where I feel like there's a lot of younger people that compete and I think they take it very to heart when they see a score or something. So there's lots of people like Milk Poetry, for example, who have a different way of scoring where everyone closes their eyes and they have to put their hand up to vote for somebody so that nobody, you don't see the, the voting so that it, it hopefully makes the poets feel more secure. Because I think there's something very... Um, uh, stripping when you can see someone score in front of you and if it's particularly low you know I've done slams before where you know men have really marked me down low because they just didn't like the poem I was doing and I and I really took it to heart you know and took it to bed with me that night and you know um and so I, I'm really interested in this idea of making making slams um yeah more not gentle I suppose but um just more accommodating for the 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 toughness of the environment, I think. Yeah, I suppose there's a way of doing slams well and there's a way of doing them badly, you know. Mm. Uh, and uh, I do, one, one would hope that as a, um, that, that performance poetry and slams have now evolved to the point where they're, they're as inclusive as they can possibly be, you know. And there's, you, one of the, like you say, one of the criticisms of slams, that there's a very narrow type of poetry that can do well. Um, but I think that's, you know, I think, I think a lot of the criticisms of slams generally are valid, but I'm still glad that they're there. You know, mm. they've brought new audiences to poetry. They've, um, everyone's doing the best three minutes or whatever, so it's really great for the audience. The atmosphere is usually pretty electric. You know, it, it's it's got it's it's always got a really unpredictable quality to it. Um, so I'm I'm a big fan of poetry slams, particularly for audiences. I think you know. Yeah. I think I think you can really discover some great stuff in, in a slam, you know, because like you say, it's unpredictable and there's a multitude of performers from different backgrounds doing it. I found some great people watching slams over the years and stuff. So I think it's, I think it's valid. And I think, yeah, I still think we should be continuing with it in, in, um, and progressing with it and how it shapes and how it looks and how it accommodates different types of people. Um, yeah, I really, I really like that. Um, let's get back to the book though, because I've just gone complete tangent off on yeah. some other stuff like I usually do. Sorry, everyone. Um, so uh, the day my head exploded is just, like we said, full of the years of your poems. Like how did you decide on those poems? Because I'm imagining that you've got a massive portfolio of material. 
yeah, there's, there's, there's loads that didn't go in. Um, I suppose what it was, uh, again, it comes down to, you write about what you know, don't you? Because I've been uh, a mental health nurse, you know, or working in mental health on and off since I was 17. And, uh, you know, so that's, what, you know, 30 years of, uh, I mean, a lot of it was, you know, I wasn't nursing at all, but still, um, even when I haven't been nursing, I'm lead artist for a thing called the Comedy Asylum, which is one of my favourite things ever, which is a bunch of people, it's me, and a bunch of people with a label of quote-unquote severe and enduring mental illness, and we put on sketch comedy shows. It, it's everything you would want that to be. Um, uh, and so I've always been involved in mental health, either as, you know, in one context or another. And so you write about what you know, and then in terms of the whittling it down, I suppose... I don't know, because now I write shows, I write, try and make myself write a new hour-long show every, every one or two years. Um, I discovered that the shows that were about mental health always sold so much more tickets than the shows that weren't about mental health, because mm. people are interested in mental health. Yeah. Ticket sales are anything to go by. Um, and so... The, the, the shows that have always been the most successful in terms of bums on seats and, and awards and reviews have been the ones about mental health. So quite, um, quite a few shows in the book, sorry, quite a few poems in the book are lifted from those shows, you know. So I've got uh, probably one of my favourite poems in the book is Elsie's poem, which is uh, a retired nurse discovers that she's got Alzheimer's and it's her, she's in the early stages, it's her poem to her future carers about what she does and doesn't want, you know. Um, and that's the start of a show, uh, uh, Forget Me Not, uh, which is a whodunit set on an Alzheimer's ward. It's like, it's like Cluedo meets Memento, right? So uh, uh, she gets murdered. Uh, it's all great, but it's, it's a standalone poem, do you know what I mean? It works in its own right. So, uh, so, so a lot of pieces, were most, quite a lot of the poems in the book were pulled out of a show uh, probably my first show that did really well, uh, Fruitcake, Ten Commandments from the Sight Ward, which um, I got, uh, uh, I mates with Gene Binter Breeze, who's a, uh, uh, a really great dub poet who's, who's now relocated to Jamaica, but I got her to be the voice of God, because uh, I quite like the idea of representing God as a very kindly uh, Jamaican woman. <laughs> so, so genius. Yeah. Um, and she gives these sort of terms, and, and so quite a few, and I never released a book of Fruitcake because it's very stand-up-y as a show, you know, there's a bit in it where, where I restrain an audience member, for example, but, uh, the, but there were quite a few set-piece poems that did, so quite a few, and then quite a few poems have come from commissions, I've, I've had a, an awful lot of commissioned stuff to write by different, um, so things like the, the chronic obstructive pulmonary disease sing-along. Uh, the brief was a comedy sing-along about chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, which is quite an ambitious subject for comedy. Um, but they discovered that singing is really good for COPD because it oxygenates the blood. And if you're choral singing, then you're socialising as well. And that's really good for your well-being. So they wanted like a sing-along about... <laughs> about chronic so so you're right so when you're you you you're writing commissions as outlandish as that idea which is something you'd never think to write about off your own steam you know then and then and then there were more there were other bits in the book which are like a snapshot of acute psychiatry in the late 90s early noughties which is when i was I mean, I left nursing in 2005 properly. I've, I've dipped back into it since, and I went back when COVID happened. But um, 
but until 2005, I was a you know full-time nurse in, in in the acute wards in psychiatry. So I, I did realise. So I wrote a lot of poems over the last year for the book that was set in that time. You know, mm -hmm. so I, I suppose that so the poems are drawn from an amalgamation of, of stuff I've nicked from my own shows, stuff I was commissioned to write, stuff that I've written over the last year looking back on what nursing was like 20 years ago because it's changed a great deal and then it's dons and sods you know yeah i suppose like looking back through all of that and then having to either write more poems or like um update material like that's uh i was having a conversation with one of our 2021 poets who is also writing a debut collection at the moment and they're someone that's very um, been around for a long time and they were saying how unexpectedly emotional it was to to have to go back through old material and, and be like, oh, wow, yeah, I remember this, or, okay, that's yeah. not something that I want to share in this way now, but I can update this to, to make it more relevant and, and how exposing that is as a writer to yourself of having to sit down and be like, what are the important pieces here? What do I want to say? And having to, yeah, relive some maybe uncomfortable parts of the past in order to get the things that you want. Yeah, there's a bit, I mean, and I think with, particularly because a lot of my poems are about mental health nursing, that there's a huge ethical thing that, to take into account. You know, so the first thing I did was make a list of all the stories I want to tell and then cross about 90% of them out. You, mm. you know, because ethically, I didn't feel like, even, even anonymizing people in them, I didn't feel like, you, you know, I thought, no, that is between me and that person. So um, I had a very deliberate no horror story um, uh, rule uh, which I stuck to you know so there's nothing um, about domestic abuse or sexual assault or and and, and, and actually um, as a mental health nurse you're exposed to that thing quite a lot by proxy and, and it is a big part of your job but I thought well no I'm, that that isn't going to go in uh, because actually it's no one else's business mm. uh, there is stuff about deliberate self-harm and things like that. So I think I think it is important that we talk about those things, and you know, all, all the sort of serious thinking about suicide and the, the deliberate self harm says that the more open we can be about discussing it, the better that is for all of us. You know, yeah. to bring you know to, to normalise it, to be open about talking about it. To them. so um, I think the big a big thing with me is about stigma. Is about reducing stigma in mental health, and I think ever since I was eighteen. I remember, you know, the care home I was in when I was 18, it was, they'd just started closing all the Victorian institutions. And so there were people who'd been in these institutions for decades who suddenly found themselves bewildered in this world that just didn't really care. Um, um, and I was in a home with, with 10 of them. And, um, and it was a gentleman who had a profound effect on me, probably even inspired me to do my nurse training. It was, you could tell within minutes it was brilliant, you know, really intelligent, switched on kind of fella. And he'd, and we'd, we, we had a lot of great conversations that would last much of the night. And um, he um, would, uh, he'd come from a family of very reputable accountants who'd ostracised him when he'd had his first psychiatric breakdown as a teenager. Mm -hmm. And in the institution, he'd not seen them for decades. And, um, and he was telling me that one time he'd got a day release from the institution and decided to go and surprise his mum. And because they were quite rich, his mum saw him at the gate of their driveway and rang the police. And he never even made it past the gate. You know, I remember feeling so angry about it, like so angry, like just ragingly angry that someone would be like so 
ostracised simply because of an illness that they had, had no choosing. And, and um, I am pleased to report that anger's never really left me. You know, it is still there. So, and, and I think because of a lot of what I write is comedic, um, I, I think when we're, if we're writing comedy, a good starting point is to start from a, something that really pisses us off, you know, and, and that's quite a good starting point a lot of the time. So we put rock. Uh, and uh, yeah, and so I, I think a lot of the book, the big, a big criteria is that if, if it's doing its bit to help reduce stigma, it's going in. So there is quite an unpleasant uh, poem about a guy who, who self-harms because of command hallucinations, you know, and, and he engaged in quite an outlandish act of, of self-mutilation. And that's in there because I thought, actually, I didn't want to just demonstrate that, yes, this kind of thing does happen, but also you can empathise with someone who would do that kind of thing. And you might, you might not think that, you, you know, people don't always think that they can, but actually it's, it's way closer to our field of empathy than we'd, we'd care to think. And so... And we've come a long way, I think, in terms of addressing stigma in mental health. We've come a really long way. When I was a, a, um, a young fella in the 90s trotting around shouting at random audiences, there was the, the survivor's poetry was quite a thing. Um, and I went to a few survivor's poetry gigs and found them to be quite... The ones I went to, I found to be quite miserable experiences. And I felt that at its worst, um, that, that the, 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 the survivor's poetry gigs I was going to were sort of perpetuating their own their own victimhood they're making very valid grievances about the mental health system and some of the more kafkaesque elements of the mental health system which were perfectly valid points but there was nothing beyond that there was nothing empowering about the lovely thing about the comedy asylum is that people are making exactly the same points but because they're taking the piss it's really empowering there's just something and this is why i like comedy based upon it. so a typical comedy asylum sketch will be macbeth the three witches but the three witches are all pharmaceutical representatives and it's dr macbeth you know so it's making all the points about the power of the pharmaceutical industry that the survivors poets are making 30 years ago but because they're having a massive laugh and making audiences laugh there is something quite empowering about it I, I think and it is I, I think people who find themselves on the receiving end of mental health treatment particularly long-term mental health treatment need that ability to get a bit satirical about it to, you know to, you know um, because there are still Kafkaesque elements do, do, do you know what I mean there's, there's almost sort of catch-22 things sometimes about psychiatry so I think mm. anything that empowers people to sort of fight back a little and do things on their own terms is uh, is pretty fabulous I think yeah. that's whatever it was. <laughs> I think that about the poems in the book about how they're reclaiming space for those people and re and telling stories um, that wouldn't be told otherwise because people in mental health institutions are often completely unrecognised. You know, their stories don't get out there. Um, it's the same for lots of people that are in homes of varying different uh, types of homes and things like that in, in terms of their stories never being never being told in a way. And there's something really empowering in the way that you you tell the stories because you bring them to life in, in a way that is um, larger than life. And yeah, and I, th I think nursing as well, as a profession, mental health nurses, you don't hear our perspective very often. Yeah, especially not in the poetry well. No. Okay. <laughs> out there delivering. Um, and so I'd want, so there's a character in the book, Cassandra, who is fictional, but based on several people, whose attitude could best be described as one of compassionate cynicism. You know, it's a total burnout, but there's still a heart there somewhere. Mm. somewhere. It's sort of hard to find, but it's there. Um, and so, yeah, and, and so a part of me wanted to celebrate people like them, because 
I often thought the thing about burnout, I think, is we should never judge those who burn out because they've given enough of themselves to burn out. Yeah. You know, therefore we sort of owe them. Um, and, and so there's a part of me that wanted to reflect that. So I wanted to ask you about your um, touring experiences because um, you've, you've been all over to do um, your shows, different fringes and stuff. Yeah. I, I went to the Edinburgh Fringe uh, a few years ago for the first time and found it very overwhelming. Yeah. And also very divisive between the official fringe and the free fringe. And the free fringe is like full of reprobates, which I love. <laughs> you know, but then like the main fringe has like cafes <laughs> and, and an official bookshop and stuff. And, um, I was like, oh, this is really weird. And I just wanted to ask you, like, what, you know, what's the difference between the Edinburgh Fringe and, say, uh, Fringe in Toronto or the Adelaide Fringe? I'm really glad, personally, right, okay, so Bridget, right, I'm really glad you asked. I'm about to say some things that not everyone's going to like. Uh, <laughs> okay, okay. This is okay, because Burning Eye are quite known for being controversial. Yeah, so. I, I don't necessarily think through my opinions before I articulate them, so I'm quite open to being, to being challenged. Oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> so, I did Edinburgh for seven years, from first year was 1999, and the last year was 2005. And this is before the days of the Free Fringe. And... Um, Jem Rolls, who's been, who's even older than I am, uh, had, had sort of, he was the first person, as far as I'm aware, who took performance poetry to Edinburgh in, as we know it, and that would have been in 1996 that Jem would basically organise a three-act poetry show um, and do it. Uh, and he got me up to do it in 99, and I did it for the next seven years. Um, Edinburgh, I'm a bit of a fringe purist. Having, having done exactly a hundred fringe festivals across the world now. Edinburgh, Edinburgh's, I'm going to say, Edinburgh, I don't see Edinburgh as a fringe, I see it as a comedy trade fair. Um, uh-huh. Or maybe for a move the word comedy fair enough, but it's definitely a trade fair. You know, uh, if you don't lose money, you're doing all right. Um, uh, I've, I've got friends on the comedy circuit that if they sell out, you know, one of the mainstream venues and they sell out every show for the fringe, they'll still owe five grand at the end of it. You know, so yeah. um, if I was in my early 20s and I had rich parents, I'd probably still do Edinburgh now. But the reason I've not done it since 2005 is that I, I genuinely don't see any need to. Um, so um, when the can, and then I found out, and, and the Adelaide, Adelaide fringe is very much on the Ad, Edinburgh model, as right. are British fringes such as Brighton, you know. Uh, mm. And the New Zealand fringes are on that model, generally speaking, as well. So that is the established model for quite a lot of fringe festivals, i.e. the artist finds the venue, pays the venue, registers for a fringe, pays the fringe, finds accommodation, pays for accommodation, and hopes that it's going to fill up the diary for the mm. rest of the year. And it might and it might not. Um, uh, another good reason for doing Edinburgh actually is the experience. To think, by the time you've done it for three weeks, you, you're in much better shape than you were at the start of the three weeks. So yeah. you'd find after three weeks of performing Edinburgh, you've really got your shit together. You know, you you really you know exactly what your best fifteen minutes is. Mm, yeah. yeah, and and that I think. So I think I think you know for the experience, it's great. You know, so it's not. I'm I, so it's I'm not slagging off Edinburgh. I know it sounds like I am. I'm just saying it's not a fringe. It's a trade fair. 
you know. I think there's a lot of people that I know, working poets who do the free fringe, who would probably agree with your um, view on that in terms of having to work exceptionally hard for very little payoff, you know. So and also that thing of like having to flyer in the streets and like, you know, so many of us are just not flyering in the streets kind of people. And we've all had that thing of walking down the Royal Mile trying to keep your head down because you really don't want to hear from this sort of, <laughs> this company of people screaming at you, you know. Yeah, and I'm, I'm thinking how many forests had to die for all of these leaflets? <laughs> it's, um, it's, it's, it's a bit mad, but I, I've only been to that fringe, so that's the only um, one that I really have to... Oh, so now we talk about the Canadian fringes and also... So, so there's two organisations in North America. You've got the Canadian Association of Fringe Festivals and you've got the uh, USAF, the United States Association of Fringe Festivals. So the idea of the Canadian Fringe is a guy, I think, if I get his name right, Brian Paisley, who from Edmonton in Alberta, who went to Edinburgh, loved it, and in the late 80s started the Edmonton Fringe, uh, which is still the biggest fringe festival in North America. So that's in Alberta in the middle of the Canadian prairie. Um, uh, but unlike Edinburgh, the Canadian Fringe model has certain criteria, which is their attempt to make it as artist friendly as possible and to make it as level playing field as possible, whether you're Jimmy Carr or my dad, it doesn't matter, right? So to get into a Canadian Fringe or, or a Canadian, a CAF Fringe, a Canadian Association of Fringe Festivals, to get in, your name is drawn out of a Tom Bowler in front of witnesses, right? That's to get in. You pay like a tenner to apply, which you don't get back. Um, and the reason it's a well kept secret is the more people know about it, the more names are in that tombola, you know. <laughs> out of a tombola. Right. If you don't get your name picked, you can enter, you, you can then enter into an Edinburgh style arrangement, find your own venue. They call it bring your own venue, and you'll be in the back of the fringe brochure under a bring your own venue kind of deal. Um, and that's more Edinburgh model. But again, you'd only really do that if you were sort of, if you knew you're going to get an audience once you'd established yourself for those, for that demographic. So leaving that aside, um, you're getting on lottery. You pay your fringe fee, which is usually the equivalent of say roughly 400 quid, right? Uh, the Canadian fringe has lasted for 10 or 12 days, depending, it's not three weeks, 10 or 12 days. And the fringe do everything, they find the venue. So rather than everyone scrabbling around in a city like Edinburgh trying to pay extortionate amounts for a broom cupboard with a stage in it, uh, the Fringe will look at your show, what your tech needs are, whether you've done it before, the kind of audience you're likely to get, the size of audience you're likely to get, and they will find a venue that's most appropriate for your show. You're not allowed to contact the venue. They do it, right? Mm. And then the shows that are in that venue all get different time slots. So you'll, you'll have one show that's one in the afternoon, followed by seven in the evening, followed by a day off, followed by a Saturday matinee. So everyone has got good and bad time slots over that 10 day. Right, okay. The venue is free. You get billeted by volunteers, so your accommodation is free. And again, they match you up with your billets. You fill out a questionnaire about whether you like smoking, whether you smoke weed, whether you like pets, whether you're, whether you're homophobic, whether you're whatever, right? They ask you all these questions, right? And they're, they're sort of match you up with it. Whether you like to go out, whether you like to stay in, all this stuff, right? The match it. So I discovered, right, touring on my own in my early 30s, I'd always get the crap den at the end of the street, right? Whereas, whereas touring with my stepdaughter, 
uh, about seven years ago, and she was about seven, we'd always get a lovely old lady with caps in the swimming pool and spoilers rotten. So it's really my interest to take my daughter out on the road with me more often. Than, you know, everyone's a winner. Um, and so you get, you get free venue, free accommodation, and 100% of your door money. Wow. And if you're in a prairie town like Winnipeg or Edmonton, um, they, they love it. They come out. They, who's going to visit Winnipeg? Uh, so it's perfectly possible to sell out a 200-seat venue. Wow. Um, so that's 200. And, and the, the tickets are really cheap. And all that door money is yours. So if you do seven shows that have got 100 people paying $12 each, that's, that's actually not a bad bit of income. Yeah. The difference is it's not a trade fair. It's like summer camp for people that are old enough to know better. Um, you won't get... It won't fill your diary up. You won't get scouts. time. It's like a big carnival of people go from city to city to city because all these fringes are 10 days long. Bizarrely, the first Canadian Association of Fringe Fest, the first calf fringe is in Orlando in May. Uh, yeah. Then you go up to Montreal and then work away. And the last one is in uh, Vancouver in September. So you can spend that four and a half months sort of on the road, really. What I am saying is it's way more artist-oriented. Friendly. Yeah, yeah. That sounds really good as well. And that's a very definition of fringe, I think, because it's all stuff that wouldn't be in mainstream venues, and that, i.e. the word fringe. Um, uh, and, and that was the first time, you know, I was talking earlier about when that hand is removed from your chest, you know, you do all those punky gigs, and, and then someone goes, what have you got? The first time I really felt that was doing a Canadian Fringe Festival. That was mm. performing for over 10 years. First time I really felt that was a theatre full of people who just wanted to, you know, what have you got? Who just wanted to... I was like, oh, uh. that made me stop writing poems and start writing shows. So if, if you are a writer, performer, if you, you know, not just poetry, but yeah, Google Canadian Association of Fringe Festivals. They make it really easy. I have one more question for you. And then I was wondering if you would like to maybe do a poem for us to right. end the episode. My final question is, if you had to be entertained by one performance poet for the rest of your life, <laughs> Who would it be? Ah, oh, you fiend. That's I know. Question. <laughs> I've, only just, uh, I've only just started to be like, maybe I'll ask a question at the end of the podcast. And it's a really mean uh, question. Th th this answer obviously comes with the disclaimer, the fairly obvious disclaimer that this is, this is how I feel right now, right? Because um, uh, it could be someone different in an hour. Yeah, um, absolutely. Right uh, now, who is it? <laughs> well, ideally, right, the, the cop-out answer, which I thought would be a cop-out, would be someone I didn't know very well that I've not seen very much and it would take a risk because that one. But based on, based on, like, poets I know well, the material of, um, I think Mark Gwynne-Jones. I think Mark Gwynne-Jones, yeah. Who, even in the 90s, and Mark was one of those who just effortlessly just wrote poetry and performed it really well, did a care, and... And just really, imagine really imaginative poems. I, I, that's what I like about Mark's stuff. You don't quite know where his imagination is going to take you next, um, but with a lovely sense of humour. So I just wanted to know if you wanted to do a, book, a poem from the book to finish the session yeah, off today. Um, uh, I shall. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll do one of because it's weird. I've got some that are about four lines long, and I've got some that last for days. You know, so. <laughs> 200 years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so uh, I thought I'd do a, a, a mixed, uh, like a, uh, 
probably the first poem in the book, I think. Okay, uh, great. A, uh, a, a true story. Um, a guy that I met in, you know, very early on in my nurse training and who passed into legend <laughs> because of this story, which I'm about to relay in, in poetic form, which is a, a truly brilliant story. Um, anyway, this is called The Very Chilled Robbery. <laughs> He'd been in the institution for a number of years. One day in the 1980s, he and his mate were chatting and one of them asked a question which ultimately changed everything. What would they do if we robbed a bank? Oh, by the way, this, this does come with a don't try this at home kind of warning, just to emphasise, don't, don't, don't go ripping off somewhere because the bald parrot told you to do it. Right? So it's just right. What would they do if we robbed a bank? Surely that the state has incarcerated us on the basis that we're insane. If we were to rob one and get caught, we wouldn't legally be to blame. And if, they, if we were to plead insanity, wouldn't they then be obliged to accept the plea? Surely the worst they could possibly do is send us back here. Given the nature of our current legal, domestic and medical circumstances, how can this possibly be a bad idea? So they buy two clown masks and two water pistols, which they paint black in their occupational therapy session. And then having gained the appropriate level of trust and permission, they catch a bus into town, walk into a bank and hold it up. It goes really well, due partly to look, but mainly to the fact that the tellers weren't remotely traumatised because they were being robbed by two guys who were clearly holding water pistols and who furthermore had been enormously polite, having both stood patiently in line with their masks on waiting for a teller. It takes decades of institutionalisation to go into that kind of behaviour. So the cashiers all decide that they might as well comply with the bank's policy of earning on the side of caution, making this the most laid-back bank robbery of all time, where neither robbers or victims really care about the conclusion. So they duly hand over the cash, which our two heroes then stuff into two plastic bags. They say cheerio to the tellers and leave the bank, lift up their clown masks and hail a cab, which they, in which they make their getaway to the pub around the corner 50 yards away. They walk in and order around for everyone there, much to everyone's liking and thus begins the biggest impromptu piss-up that part of the world has seen since the days of the Vikings. Word spreads, and by sundown the boozer is full of people, all of whom are transcendentally plastered on the bank's money. When the armed police arrive, they find these two completely pie-eyed, sat at a table with the masks in a big pile of cash, going one for you, one for me, one for you, one for me. They were put on separate wards after that. That's so good. The image of it is, yeah. Yeah. You can't make this this shit up, can you? It did become a bit of a hero after, because I remember reading through his case notes and then, you know when you meet a hero and you're all whimsical and dithery around them, you know? So that's when I met him. I was like, oh, I love your work. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Rob, that's such a good good note to end today's episode on oh it's been a real pleasure to talk to you today um and to to get a bit more info about uh, the workings behind the book and also your amazing information about um the canada fringe how to get involved that kind of thing as well um you are a true asset to the spoken word scene well thank you thank you as, as you are yourself and <laughs> as is 
burning eye, you know, I mean, yeah, it's just, uh, um, what a stable, you know, you, you know, that so many re really good performance posts, really people, you know, who I didn't even know I'd see it. Yeah, it's just great. It's just, it's been a real game changer, I think. Yeah, we're 10 years old next year and I'm, Whoa. you know, and it's, it's such a proud thing to achieve and be like, this is our contribution to the spoken word scene, us repping, you know, 10 years of publishing performance poetry when people said it couldn't be done. So I'm really glad that you get to be part of our portfolio of, of poets. Um, and I'm really looking forward to your book launch, which will be on the 25th of April. 25th of April at seven o'clock. We've decided on a time now. Seven o'clock, no. great. Yes. Okay, well, um, I will make sure that all the details get out to everybody so that they can um, join in for the book launch. You've got special guests, Steve Larkin and Lydia Talsey. Yeah. Yeah, great. What a lineup as well, like old school. Great yeah. Yeah, really great. Um, thanks again for uh, taking the time to chat to me today. It's been really lovely to catch up. Thank you so, so much for inviting me, Bridget, and happy editing, and uh, have a lovely rest of your day. Thank you so 